Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. And if you really love to do comedy or if you really love to act or if you really like to write, you'll just do it. And you'll, the, the, the business will come to you, you know, but you just keep writing, you keep acting, you keep doing what you could doing. The business will just happen, but never set out to be a star and you're going to fail. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a a very, 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 very great moment for me today because I am sitting across from Kevin Farley. I have never met Kevin Farley, and I've been looking forward to this for a long time, ever since I knew the documentary that he is one of the producers of, I Am Farley, about his brother Chris I found out that was coming out and I have a lot of feelings today and I do these podcasts you don't actually know what I'm feeling you don't know what's happening it's like if you're like a salesperson and you're going into a meeting and you want to sell something to a company and you're in a room with five people you don't know what they've been through that day You don't know if one person had a baby and they're all excited. You don't have another person lost their father the night before. You don't know if they got in a fight with their wife. You have no idea what's happening. But you go in and you try to navigate and you try to figure out how to do the right thing and try to make things work. I did something today that I'm going to share with you that I've never done before that I know of on this podcast. I sat down with Kevin Farley And I had a conversation with him before we came on and the conversation that I had with him, I won't go into detail, probably uncomfortable for him, uncomfortable for me and probably uncomfortable for the people in the room here because I have thoughts about certain things, but this is a very positive show. And I I always wonder sometimes as I meet people, how it's going to be and how it's going to go. And Kevin is somebody who has strong feelings about how, he wants his life presented and how he wants the memory of his brother to be presented. 
And I had a lot of thoughts about that because he sent me the screener to the film. And just to let you all know, just so you have the information, because I want you to have the information. This is a film that's going to be screening in a hometown of Madison, Wisconsin on August 8th. And it's going to premiere on Spike TV on August 10th. And I got the film last night before this interview. And I... I was up late. My kids had a baseball game and I got home. And by the time I got them and carried them from the car into the bed, it was like midnight and got my act together. It's like 1 a.m. And I say to myself, I am not going to sit down with Kevin Farley unless I am prepared. And so I played the movie and I normally, this is something you guys don't know about me. I work very hard to the point where I'll be sitting at my computer in different places and what will wake me up is either the computer falling, my phone falling, or my head hitting the countertop. (laughs) And I was exhausted last night. But from the moment I pressed play on that documentary, I was riveted and I was blown away and I, I celebrated the life of Chris Farley the way I know Kevin had the intention of doing so. And as I sit across from my guest here today, I just want to say before I go into a story that I I normally go into, and I don't know what I'm going to go into, it just happens when I watch him and I look at him and I sit across from him. I just want to say, for those of you who support the show, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You guys have been amazing. I can't do this without you. And if you ever feel the need that you want to give something back without having to write a check, just go on my website, barrycats.com slash podcast. Press the Amazon banner if you're shopping. Go crazy. The people at Amazon, they support the show. They send a little kickback to the Barry Cats Jewish Sons College Fund. And I really, really appreciate that. And so check that out. So I'm here. I'm sitting across from Kevin. And this is what comes to mind to me. And I'm probably going to get emotional here. And I don't want to get emotional, but I am. Jay Moore said of Chris Farley in his first book, Gasping for Airtime. I'll never forget this quote. He said, Chris Farley was a wrecking ball of joy. And to me, that's everything that I remember. I remember I was at Saturday Night Live a lot because Jay was a cast member, Jim Brewer, Tracy Morgan, Daryl Hammond. These are all people that I had fortunately been a part of representing and with their talent in mind to get them on the show. Also very close to Sherry O'Terry, who is also a client of mine now and who was an incredible talent at the time. And just hanging around Chris Farley, he was somebody who had no fear. There was never any fear at all as a performer. And if you're listening and you have any semblance of a point in this business where you're an actor, an actress, a comedian, a magician a musician, anybody, or I don't care what profession you're in, fear and doing well don't go together. There's no way that you're ever going to be successful if you have fear. And Chris Farley 
had no fear and it was incredible what you could see you know there's certain artists in our business that you watch who shall remain nameless and we know them because we see them on television all the time who just are not comfortable in their own skin and some of them are very very good looking people with washboard stomachs and six packs and Chris Farley was the kind of person who was just completely comfortable in his own skin. He dominated the room. He dominated everybody around him. And there was nobody who could compete with him. Even if he had one scene, one line, it didn't matter if you were hanging out in the conversation, just standing around with him. You have no idea how powerful somebody is. When guys like Mike Myers and Adam Sandler and David Spade cannot hold back their laughter when they're in a sketch with him and fear that Lorne Michaels is going to fire them because they're laughing in a sketch. But that's what Chris did. His goal oftentimes in doing a sketch at Second City or on Saturday Night Live or on The Letterman Show he had, it seemed like, one singular goal, and that was almost like the franchise show Make Me Laugh. His only goal was to make you break and to take you to a place that you'd never been before. And every time I met him and every time I was around him, I felt that no fear, but I felt so much love and so much compassion, and he had so much heart. And it was hard for me because I was very naive, and I didn't really understand the way people worked and how show business worked. I was a young manager. I had four people on Saturday Live, and the anxiety that everybody was feeling. But when you were around Chris, you didn't feel anxiety. You just felt like... Honestly, for me, I always felt like I was watching a guy that I wasn't going to be seeing that much longer. He was so bigger than life, such a force of nature, that there was no way that a man who was living his life as a performer a hundred miles an hour, that he could possibly be in a situation where I could see that wrecking ball of joy for my entire career but I prayed I would. And I just want to tell all of you out there that this business is a really, really hard business. It's a very difficult business. And if you're talented, this business will take you on the wildest, wildest ride. And I remember I was at the Aspen Comedy Festival in the late 90s. It was my last time that I got to hang out with Chris. And I remember I went up to him and he was standing in a corner as he often did. He had this way about him that he was, he was bigger than life. It was incredible. Like he could draw a huge crowd, but then he could literally hide in a corner somewhere. And oftentimes I'd see him like munching on like, a snack or a burger or something in the corner and just taking in the whole room with this look on his face of complete joy. And I remember 
going up to him and saying, Chris, you know, I know I don't get to tell you this that often, but um, much respect. Much respect. That's all I could muster. And he looked up. And he flipped his hair like he often did and gave me that wry smile and said, thanks, man. And that was the last time I saw him. That was the last thing he said to me. But I believed what I said. And it was nice to hear that he appreciated it. And I revered Chris Farley. And... My only thought to everybody listening out there is if you ever have the opportunity in whatever profession you're in to rise like a rocket ship with your talent, understand the good and the bad and know the right and wrong about how to hang with which sort of people and which sort of crowds because it's very important because if you're anything like Chris Farley you're an inspiration to the world and as long as you're an inspiration to the world that means that every day you're around you inspire hundreds thousands millions of people and the world needs you if you are as powerful a presence as Chris Farley. So understand what I'm saying. I know it's kind of cryptic, but I think you know where I'm going. And I wish all of you the kind of life and heart that Chris Farley had. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. If you don't mind, take our audience through just a couple of more improv set pieces that would be the most popular that people go to that they don't understand the name of and they don't understand what it actually entails. Well, another one at the time when we were down at Second City at that time, which was Tina Fey was there and, and Amy Poehler and they were all at that time in the 90s. There's a guy named Armando Diaz who came up with a uh, another form, if you will. He call it a form where a guy, a monologist would step out. Let's say there's 16 players and a monologist would step out and do a monologue about he'd get a suggestion from the audience. And then he'd do a monologue, usually lasting about three or four minutes. And then the audience or the, the players would go from side to side of the stage and then do vignettes on that monologue. And that was called the Armando Diaz form because he came up with it. And then, so the other form usually uh, entailed uh, at the time second city did when I was there, they did basically scenes, you know, you know, that were uh, 
in and of themselves, uh, just kind of separate in and of themselves. You know, they would do a review that was a one scene, two scene, and they didn't really connect with one another. And that was the old form at Second City. But then uh, Pinata Full of Bees was a review at Second City, basically, at that time, that took the long form improv for that IO was doing and incorporated it into the review, like a Second City review. And so it brought back much like the Herald kind of thing. So they did scenes, but the scenes would call back to one another and it was more of a long form influence uh and that was it really groundbreaking at the time uh because it was at the first time you saw like long form form at, 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 in a review a second city review which typically was just scene 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 that were separate from one another and then it would have callbacks at the time so it was a, in long form that was what's going on in the 90s in Chicago at the time. A lot of those forms were just long form had its influence on Second City at the time. Well, that was the first time that happened. Yeah. Got it. So Lauren comes out to see a show. Yeah. And you're aware that he's coming. Everybody's aware that he's coming. Nobody's testing for the show, but he's coming. Yeah. And there's a certain troupe that he sees that night that it includes Chris Farley. Yep. Who were some of the other cast members in that group that Lauren went to see that night? David Pasquese, Joel Murray, Bill's brother. Um, Timmy Meadows was in that cast, who eventually went to Saturday Night Live. And I think um, uh, Joe Liss and, oh boy, I'm forgetting now. Yeah, but they were a talented group. Pasquese was... Very talented. He was know. probably one of the most underrated guys yeah. in the history of that company. Absolutely. I mean, really, really talented guy. Guy yeah. always killed. Killed. Cerebral humor, which Chris and him were very different because Pesquazi was cerebral and Chris was more physical. So together they made a really great, great cast. So I'm sure you're there that night that, that Lauren attends the show. Well, yeah, the first time Chris came off, he did a thing called Whale Boy, whereas he was a guy that discovered in a wasteland, and he was half whale, half boy, and he had a helmet on that spewed water, <laughs> and he sang a song, goes, I'm a whale, not a boy, just a product of wasteland. I can't remember the song now, but it was a hit, and he would come out and flop like a whale. <laughs> across the stage. Yeah, across the stage, and, and Pasquese was a professor, and he'd be like, well, we've discovered this man that's half whale and half boy. I don't know what to do with him. And, you know, he was kind of Chris's little, <laughs> he was his toy that he was, it was showing off to the other professors, you know. And then Chris sang a huge song and then he would leap off stage and run through the crowd. And the night Lauren was there, he leapt off stage and snapped his ankle. Yeah. And he didn't make it that first time that Lauren was in. He was just heartbroken because... It was the night before Lauren, I think, was going to come, and he, and he couldn't make it on stage. He snapped his ankle the first time Lauren came, and he's like, ah, damn, Lauren's there. And I snapped my, I'm in the hospital, snapped my ankle. So, But the second time around, he got on, and Chris got on Saturday Night Live. How far after that was that second time when he recovered? Maybe a few months, which was agonizing months, because he had to heal up for this. Probably six months later, Lauren came out a second time, and his ankle was healed. He did Whale Boy, and... He so Lauren brings him out the test. Now you remember those those days where, you know, you get flown out to New York. Yeah. You got this fresh faced kid from Madison, Wisconsin <laughs> yeah. being flown out 
checking into a hotel probably for the first time in his life alone yep. in New York alone. Chances are you're not there with him, but you no. get the call and he's getting ready to go on and he's getting ready to test. What does he tell you? What things does he tell you before he has to go to Rockefeller Center and compete with all these other people from all over the country? Does he tell you that, hey, I got this, bro? Or does he tell you, like, I don't know what's going to happen? I, we as a family knew instinctively, look out Saturday Night Live. Don't, you know, he's going to rock. He's going to be a, a star. I don't think there was a doubt in our family's mind. They what better a, look out for him. But because, what about his mind? But his mind, New York was a big town. We were all a little afraid for him just being in that city, you know, and knowing New York, it was a big town that he could get in a lot of trouble. It just, it was like, uh, we just sort of were very nervous that he was going into this big city with a big television show. We're just nervous for him. But I mean... Before he got the television show, was he confident or was he not confident? He was confident in his ability. He wasn't confident in the business side of it. He didn't understand it. He wasn't confident in his comedy, but he just, show business itself was way too much for him to handle. Way, way too much. And I think he had my dad and everybody trying to help him, but he didn't understand the business. He didn't, I don't know, he just didn't fit in well with the business side of it. You know, he, he knew how to do a scene and how to make it funny. And that's all he knew. But the whole like Lauren Michaels, NBC television show stardom was way out of his league. And that's what we were nervous about when we, when he left Madison, we were like, he's over his head on this. We don't doubt that he's funny, but he's way over his head uh, with this show business thing. Uh, You know, so we were nervous. Now, one of the things being around the show as much as I was, again, I think I was very naive about a lot of things. And um, hmm. now I'm getting emotional. <laughs> Don't you start. And I'm going to go. There was a guy who I used to watch when I didn't get to go to Saturday Night Live that I used to watch on television. And I thought he was brilliant on the news chair. And I never really understood why he looked so horrible all the time. He always looked so sweaty and his hair was always oily. (laughs) But his comedy was so unbelievable. And I'm talking about A. Whitney Brown. Right, yeah. And when I go to the show and I hang around... He was the one guy that I felt was like there was something wrong with this guy, but I didn't know what it was wrong. I didn't know what he was on, what he was doing. Mm -hmm. But as I sort of hung around, I understood as a young, naive guy from Longmeadow, Massachusetts, that there were certain guys whose vices were women. Yeah. And there are certain guys whose vices were like Del Close and A. Whitney Brown it appeared to me as the more I hung around him was that guy. And yeah, it always scared me for the other cast members there being around him because he was so smart. His comedy was so smart Mm -hmm. and it was mesmerizing kind of comedy. And I thought to myself, 
from the comedy clubs that I'd been in where I saw certain vices around and I saw certain people get sucked into certain things. That was something that always worried me. Mm -hmm. And I always felt in my heart and I don't know anything and I can't quantify anything. And I, and maybe it's wrong of me, but I always felt that a Whitney Brown Mm. had a lot of responsibility Hmm. with the things you and your family were worried about <laughs> in New York City. Yeah. Am okay. I wrong? <laughs> Barry, you're in trouble there. Uh, I don't know. I can't really comment on that because I wasn't there. But, I mean, um, yeah, look, I mean, yeah, probably. I don't know. I'm not going to sit there and say, hey, did he contribute to all that uh i don't know you know but uh my guess is probably (laughs) yeah you know i don't know uh but i'm not gonna because that's a pretty serious uh accusation you know and i wasn't there so uh i don't know but i do i do know that uh yeah he was probably involved with all that stuff and i i know that uh Oh, that that's an unfortunate goddamn thing, you know. And it makes me angry. Uh, I saw Whitney Brown at the 40th, uh, and I gave him a head nod and went on my way. But, you know, with that kind of world, uh, who are you going to blame? I don't know, you know, when that stuff's going around. I don't know. Can't really. I want to blame somebody, you know. It would be easier for me. But I don't know. You know, Chris is probably to blame, you know, or a Whitney or heroin itself. I don't know. I mean, there's enough blame to go around, but I don't want to live in that world to get angry and blame somebody because that's just, it's not healthy. It's not good. The past is the past and shit went down and people died and I don't want to blame everybody. You know, it's just not where I want to live. Got it. And so, uh, (laughs) you know what I mean? I mean, Everybody partied at SNL. I think everybody partied pretty hard. I don't think Chris was the only one, you know. And so I don't know what, what what exactly went down on that whole thing, you know. I just want to go back to one thing more positive. Take yeah. me through your first phone call, Chris calling you and telling you, "Well, yeah, I got the show." That was interesting because I thought. You know, when we were at Saturday Night Live, or he was at Second City, and I thought, well, I thought maybe he'd just be a teacher at Second City and live in Chicago, and I'd be like, that's cool. He'll just hang out there and and then, you know, just eventually teach at Second City and, and be like a professor there and just kind of this crazy guy that works at Second City. And I'm like, well, good. He found his way. You know, that's cool. He, he found his thing, and he likes acting, and he'll be at Second City all his life. And then he calls and goes, you know, I got on SNL and he called me and goes, I got Saturday Night Live. And I go, well, this is going to be different. Now shit's really going to be weird. And I knew right at that point, I'm like, well, this little family from Madison, Wisconsin is suddenly going to be put in the spotlight, regardless if we want it or not. And it had never been the same after that. And because I knew once he was on TV, he wasn't going to be a day player. He wasn't going to be a fly by night person that was just on SNL. I knew right away he was going to rock it. 
So I thought to my dad, I said to my dad, I go, this is never going to be the same. Jesus, grab hold. This is going to be different for the rest of your life. And it, it has never been the same. So it was just a game changer. And I remember thinking as I hung up the phone going, oh, this is going to be different for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Because we were an anonymous and now we're in the public eye, which is good and bad. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Let's do, if you don't mind, a little six degrees of separation. Okay. I'm going to mention somebody's name and anything that comes to mind. Okay. All right? All right. Adam Sandler. Lovely. Lovely guy. Beautiful man. Beautiful, loving family man. A rarity in show business. You know, loves his family. Is a very dedicated, hard worker and a lovely person. Chris Rock uh, was Chris's best, one of his best friends, really. A, I would say Rock was, was one of his favorites and also dedicated, dedicated comic. Who, by the way, was hired the same year as Chris. Yeah. And they truly loved each other. They had a great friendship. Norm MacDonald. And Enigma. <laughs> but intriguing. An Enigma. The late Dennis Hopper. Oh, I worked with Dennis. Uh, I was in awe of him. You know, I think I was just, I didn't only met him, you know, on set. I talked to him a little bit, just kind of in awe. I sat in awe of him, <laughs> just what he did with, with show business, you know, starting from Easy Rider to one of those guys that took the bull by the horns and just did it himself. Dan Aykroyd. Oh, God. Mad genius, you know, came up with Ghostbusters. He loves the paranormal, Dan, and he loves his vodka. He's one of a kind. You know, he's a he's a sweet, sweet man, but he he loves the paranormal. <laughs> he likes ghosts. Dan loves ghosts. Yeah. David Spade. My brother, probably another Farley member. I would think of him as a brother, yeah. Kelsey Grammer. Oh, God, I love Kelsey. We did the show together. I don't get to see him as much as I'd love to. Just a kind, kind man. Very kind person. Mike Myers. Another kind, sensitive performer. Really sensitive, really kind, and genius. Molly Shannon. A ball of fire. Just a ball of, of positivity and the unsinkable Molly Shannon. There's nothing that can bring her down. If I could have an ounce of that positivity, I would I would survive for years. Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> uh, another kind, kind person. I only got to know him through that, that movie and just a really kind man that that uh, loved what he did, loved being who he was. And in the, in the, the second year, half of his career loved him, loved the, what, what he was. So he was very happy and very content and very kind. Christine Applegate. I don't know her as much, you know. Uh, she was lovely to do the film. I just think that she is one of those that has, you know, done so much in show business and everything she does is really, really good. I watch her every single time and I think she's excellent in everything she does. And I'm very honored for her to be in the film because she was part of that iconic sketch. If she doesn't laugh, I don't know if that's as good as that sketch really is. 
Christina Applegate was the host when Chris Farley did the first Matt Foley motivational speaker <laughs> and she played David Spade's sister, I believe, in yeah, the yeah, sketch yeah. and Phil Hartman was the dad and I believe the late Jan Hooks was the mom. And, yeah. Am I incorrect? Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I know. Thank God I have a memory. <laughs> Bob Odenkirk. Oh, genius. Just a genius. I don't, in so many ways from, you know, the movie that he's in or the show that he's on now and a, in a underrated, I think, underrated actor and the guy should be way bigger and i know he's big now but he he just i still think he's doesn't deserve what he what he what he is he's just a force the force of nature tom arnold (laughs) another force but in a very nervous force (laughs) tom needs to calm down no tom is uh once again like a brother to me i've known him you know chris and him were like a married couple uh, just a ball of energy, a ball of showbiz energy. And, uh, I always look at Tom as somebody that, uh, once again, takes initiative and gets projects going. He's, he's, he's unsinkable in that way too. He never gets down. He's very positive and he's always moving forward, which I love. And I always respected Tom for that moving forward. Great manager, the late Bernie Brillstein. Oh boy. Santa, <laughs> Santa Claus. He, uh, definitely Chris loved Bernie. Bernie was old school showbiz. Um, Bernie loved Chris and Chris loved Bernie and they were very similar to one another. Bernie had insecurities like Chris had insecurities and with food and, you know, and that kind of thing. So they really got along well. Chris uh, or Bernie always was just like Santa Claus, just like a dad. I mean, but like a powerful Santa. Even more powerful than Santa. <laughs> John Voigt. Wow. Uh, intense. Uh, a boxer. And just a brilliant actor through his intensity. You know, he approaches things uh, very intense. Intense. You know, and working with him, you know, you you raise your, your game when you're working with John Voigt. I sort of had to, you know, it's like, uh, it's like you're being in a ring with a, a really great boxer. You know, you, you realize, okay, I got to take my acting job seriously. <laughs> he's intense and he's great at everything he does. I, Ray Donovan, my God, I didn't think, you know, when I see John, I, I'm like, what has he got next? I mean, he's always surprising you. Ray Donovan is just brilliant. Absolutely. Brilliant. And finally, Lauren Michaels. Just another king of showbiz. He's king of all showbiz. If I had his knowledge, I'd be much... uh, He just knows so much about being successful in the business side of of showbiz, which I wish I knew half of or even a quarter of what he knows about the business side of it. He is the king of kings. I would agree with that. (laughs) Before I go into my last few questions... I know you guys, all you brothers, were pranksters growing up. <laughs> yeah. Which sort of fed into your brother on Saturday Night Live through those hallways between shows. Yeah, yeah. Tell our audience one prank that you can oh. tell them that you heard that your brother pulled on somebody at Saturday Night Live or some stunt that he did, that not on the show, but behind yeah. the scenes that you can tell us about. 
Well, I, I don't know if it's a prank, but the funniest thing that we did, we used to visit him all the time in New York City. And one time we were his Mother's Day and my brother and I went out to New York and bought my mom a brooch because she loves brooches. You know, it was like a bumblebee or something like that. Mm-hmm. And before the show, we put it in Chris's dressing room and then we sat in the audience, you know, and so we watched the whole show and then they come out at the end and they wave goodbye, and Chris is wearing the bumblebee on his shirt. <laughs> and he looks at my brother and I in the audience, he's like, thank you very much for the brooch. <laughs> and I'm like, he thinks it's for him. <laughs> and he wore it. He liked it. you know. And I'm like, should we tell him it's for mom? And they're like, no. <laughs> Let him wear the brooch. Let him wear the brooch. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your brother's looking down. Yeah. He can say anything to the world yeah. right now and broadcast all over the world. Yeah. What would his message be? His message, and this is what I did the documentary, is just he wanted people to laugh and he wanted them to, to his memory to be one of joy and laughter. And, you know, so just remember him in that way. I think that's his message to the world. Remember him in that way, you know, that the, the, the sketches and the movies and that's who he was and, uh, all the other stuff, forget about, because that's the only thing that lasts, you know. Now I'm going to do something that I've never done before in my last three questions Mm -hmm. because I feel like I'm sitting across from you who are an extraordinary artist and great actor and (laughs) producer I'm also sitting across from a part of your brother that's being channeled through you. Yeah, I feel that. And so I'm going to do something kind of unique, I guess. I'm going to ask you three questions and I'm going to ask you to answer them as yourself first. Okay. And then as your brother second. (laughs) All right, I'll try. I'll try. Your biggest disappointment in show business and what you did to take that disappointment and turn it into something great in your career. First as you, then as your brother. Oh boy. Okay. For me, Ooh, uh, biggest disappointment in showbiz was doing a movie called fart. The movie should have never done it (laughs) simply because of the title fart. The movies on my resume. (laughs) <laughs> if I could take that off, I would definitely do that. Pass on fart the movie, folks. <laughs> and how did you how did you use that disappointment to, uh, to... I just live with it. <laughs> and people bring it up, they're like, hey, you did a movie called Fart. I'm like, no, I'm actually a good actor. I'm actually really good. We did a movie called Fart. And never mind. So there was nothing you could pull on from that disappointment. <laughs> really, yeah. Can't really do anything about that. It's stuck on the IMDb. There's and what would your brother say was his biggest disappointment that he turned into positive? I think Chris took Black Sheep, which was kind of not where he wanted it to be. And well, the script was kind of a disaster when he. And then every single night after shooting 18 hour days, he rewrote the next day and worked his tail off to make that a pretty good film. I mean, it was, I, it was one of the only times in his career 
yeah. where he sat down and he actually did rewrite things he did. and work on things. And we were, we, every single day we'd get done with shooting and go, okay, we have a writing session. I'd be like, good Lord. So we'd be done with 14 hours a day and then we'd write at night. Pretty intense. But he turned that movie into, into something good, you know, which was the script was pretty bad to start with. So he, I think he'd be pretty proud of where he took Black Sheep and, and made it into something good. Got it. Worked his tail off on that movie. Which goes to my next thing, your proudest moment <laughs> and your brother's proudest moment in show business. I think Chris's proudest moment would have to be, boy, I don't know. My proudest moment in show business, uh, I think just doing my own movie, American Carol, I think with David Zucker, working with David Zucker and being the star of my own film, that's probably the, the best. That and the boy band thing was pretty good. Uh, and then Chris is probably would have to say doing Tommy boy or, or just the, the Tommy boy was his best movie. I think it was at when he was really hitting it, working on all four cylinders and really nailing it. I think that's where he'd say I was, I was really killing it then, you know? Got it. Yeah. Finally, what advice would you have for the young person growing up in Madison, Wisconsin, or some yeah. small town, just with some semblance of a dream of what it would take to get to the next level. What do you feel it takes to get to the point where you have in your career? And consequently, also, after you talk about that, what would Chris say would his advice would be for the young person in the business to get to the next level and achieve the heights yeah. that he did? Well, he never set out to get up to that height. You know, he never set out to become a star. You know, when he went into the Arc Theater in Madison, Wisconsin, which was a garage, he just followed what he thought were his strengths and he knew he could do well at. So he always followed just the comedy, the work. And, and that's what really, he wouldn't worry about that. He didn't know anything about the business. And the business actually was, I wish he would have known more about it. He just, followed what he thought he really loved to do. And, and if you really love to do comedy or if you really love to act, or if you really like to write, you'll just do it. And you'll, the, the, the business will come to you, you know, but you just keep writing, you keep acting, you keep doing what you could doing. The business will just happen, but never set out to be a star. Then you're going to fail. I mean, then you're going to fail. Yeah. Just Keep writing, keep acting, keep doing what you love, and then it'll happen. Or it won't, but at least you'll be doing what you love. Kevin Farley, <laughs> you attacked the couch today. <laughs> I got through it. That's amazing, all I said. Amazing, amazing show. Oh, thank you, God. It was tough at the beginning. I'm sorry. But I got through it. I'm glad. <laughs> no, I'm honored that you did this. Thank you so, so much. Well, thank you. And I hope people love the film. And thank you for having me. And thank you very much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years was the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. 
He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels 
feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.